Amen. All right, well, we're there in uh, Job chapter number 21. And of course, on Wednesday nights, we are studying through the book of Job. Wednesday nights are Bible study night. And we are taking one chapter a week in this chapter. And if you remember, uh, as we've been going through the book of Job, you'll remember that the first couple of chapters in the book of Job is a narrative. We read this story about this man named Job, who the Bible says that God said that he was a perfect and an upright man, that he was a mature Christian and someone that honored the Lord, and he was highly blessed. And as a result of a challenge between God and Satan, Job ends up losing everything. He loses all of his wealth, he loses all of his children, he loses his health, his wife turns on him, and even his friends uh, turn on him. And, of course, he's being tested, and he doesn't know it, but he's passing with flying colors. The rest of the book, and the majority of the book, is a conversation between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. And they go through and have these rounds where each one will speak, Job will respond, And we've gone through, tonight we're in chapter 21, and we are actually ending the second round of these conversations. Uh, Job is going to be responding to Zophar the Naamathite, and this chapter will conclude round two, and next week we'll begin round three of these conversations that they have. And the, the main issue in this chapter that you should be aware of, if you've not picked up on it, is that Job's friends take a very simplistic view of suffering in life. And their view is basically this, that if you're good, good things will happen to you. And if you're bad, bad things will happen to you. And they are using that argument to say that Job must have done something really terrible. He must have been a wicked sinner. There must have been something very terrible in his life that he did because all these bad things are happening to him. And we know that if bad things happen to you, it's because you're a bad person. And Job is arguing with them and trying to explain that it's not that simple. And, of course, the book of Job teaches us that it's not that simple. And Job is explaining to us that sometimes bad things happen to good people. And we've talked extensively about that. In this chapter, I feel like it's a little unique because oftentimes when people try to attack God or try to attack our faith, They'll, uh, they'll ask that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I've preached entire sermons. I've preached an entire series on the subject of why do bad things happen to good people. And I won't take the time to develop that tonight. But we know, of course, that sometimes bad things happen to good people because God is trying us and testing us and refining us like we see with Job. Sometimes bad things happen to good people because other people sin around us and we are not an island. Our sins can affect other people. Sometimes bad things happen to good people because the Bible says there is none that doeth good, no, not one. And even so-called good people will reap what they sow and uh, will have to endure the punishment of their own sin. There's all these issues. What's interesting about Job 21 is that Job takes it a step further. He doesn't ask this very deep, though common question, why do bad things happen to good people? He instead kind of flips the script, and he asks this question, why do good things happen to bad people? And he develops this thought and this idea 
I want you to notice here in Job 21 and verse 1, the Bible says this, but Job answered and said, and of course, this will be Job's response to Zophar, and this will conclude round two of these discussions. And I want you to notice in the first part of this chapter, in verses two through six, he begins by giving a little bit of introduction, and he does this, and we've seen Job do this already. He's kind of teaching his friends and trying to explain to them how to comfort because they are there supposedly to comfort. And I believe their heart was in the right place. If you remember, they showed up, and the Bible says they showed up to comfort their friend Job. They sat with him for seven days and did not say a word, stayed quiet with him as he mourned. And if you remember, Job is the one that broke the silence. Job is the one that started this conversation. And then it just went downhill from there. And Job has called them miserable comforters. He's explained to them that if they came to comfort him, they have completely failed at that uh, because he is not feeling comforted at all. And he does that again here in verse 2. He says, hear diligently my speech. And then he says this, and let this be your consolation. He says, he says, here's what you should have done. He says, let me explain to you what you should have done. If you wanted to console me, here's what you should have done. Now, here's why this is important for you and I to take note of is because from time to time, you and I will find ourselves in positions where we have to comfort others where other people are hurting and struggling and going through difficult times in their lives. And we may need to comfort them. And who better than Job, who was a man who I don't think any of us could say we have ever gone through as much heartache and as much burden as Job has. And Job is telling us this is how you should comfort. So we should take note of it. You say, how do you comfort somebody when they are struggling and going through something? Well, notice again verse 2. He says, Hear diligently my speech. The word diligent or diligently means to work hard at something. He says, hear diligently. He says, you should work hard to hear my speech. See, the way that we comfort people, the things that we should try to do is we should first of all seek to understand by hearing them out. We as human beings spend a lot of time as Children, as toddlers and children, our parents spend a lot of time trying to teach us to talk, trying to teach us words and vocabulary. We spend a lot of time being trained to speak, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. Unfortunately, we're not given as much training on how to listen and how to hear. And oftentimes, we are very bad at the uh, practice or discipline of hearing people out. And Job says, look, if you wanted to, count, uh, to consult me, here's what you should have done. Hear diligently my speech. Take the time and work hard at actually uh, uh, listening. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you know they're not listening to anything they're saying? you're saying? In fact, the whole time that you're talking, you can see their eyes is kind of moving and they're just kind of getting their response. They're just getting ready for you to take a breath so they can jump in and say what they want to say. He says, hear diligently my speech. I wonder if this is how this conversation went with Job and his friends. Look at verse 3. He says, suffer. The word suffer means allow. Allow me that I may speak. And I think that Job understands that his jab at his friends here is futile because then he kind of sarcastically says, and after that I have spoken, mock on. 
He realized that they've been mocking him this whole time. They've been uh, taking jabs at him this entire time. And he's pleading with them that they would hear diligently, that they would listen, that they would actively try to understand and hear him out, and that they would allow him to speak. But he kind of already sees it on their faces, that they're not even paying attention. And he just sarcastically says, and once I'm done, you can mock on. If you must, you can continue mocking. But Job gives us this idea of how to console people. And the first thought is that we should seek to understand. Seek to understand. Because isn't this the truth? All of us wants to be understood. I mean, everybody wants to be understood. We never, we, when, when, when we have discussions with people and when we have arguments with people, you say, how, how can I, you know, cause arguments maybe to not be as heated? I believe that if we took the time to actually try to understand the other person, to put ourselves in their shoes. And that doesn't mean that you will agree with them, but you will at least try to see it from their perspective. Job says, if you would just allow me, suffer me that I may speak. If you would just hear diligently my speech. And then he connects that to this idea of empathy. He says, you should seek to understand by hearing me out, and you should seek to understand by trying to empathize with me. Notice verse 4. He says, as for me, is my complaint to man? And if I were so, why should not my spirit be troubled? He says, mark me. The word mark means, means you know, put a target on me. Look at me. He's looking at his friends, and he's saying, look at me. Mark me and be astonished. The word astonished means... Uh, of great surprise. And again, if you remember, Job was the most powerful man in the East at this time, the most wealthy man in the East at this time. And now he has been brought to nothing. He is physically falling apart. He has no, he says he can't even get his old employees and his servants to even talk to him. And he's mocked by children. And he's telling his friends, he said, just look at me. He said, if you really took a look at me, you'd be astonished. And lay your hands upon your mouth. Even when I remember, I am afraid. He said, even when I think about what I've gone through, he said, it makes me afraid. And I've lived through it. And trembling taketh hold on my flesh. And what we see is we see Job telling his friends, he's telling his friends, I wish you would try to hear me out and you try to understand and empathize with me a little bit. Let me tell you something. When it comes to judgment, this is often what's missing in our judgment. We sit, we sit across from people, and this is something that my wife and I had to learn uh, in ministry. We sit across from people often having to bring judgment into a situation as a pastor, as a pastor's wife, to say, well, this is what the Bible says, and this is what should be done, and this is what, what needs to happen. And let me tell you something. We should always stand for truth. We should always stand for right. We should always stand uh, for all of those things. But let's not forget that that should be done with a spirit of meekness, the Bible says. See, his friends are here, and they're judging Job and saying, man, you're this and you're that, and, and, and you're worthless, and look at all these things. And Job is saying, hey, don't forget, I'm a human being just like you. I've got a story just like you've got a story, and I've struggled with things just like you've struggled. He says, mark me and be astonished, and here's the truth. Don't you want someone to judge you with the same spirit that you would like to be judged? I mean, shouldn't we, as Job's friends, before we get up on our high horse and 
get very high and mighty and pharisaical about how righteous we are and unrighteous you are. And by the way, his friends were wrong. But even if they were right, judgment should always be done with a spirit of meekness, with a spirit of restoration, with a spirit of forgiveness. And Job kind of pleads with his friends. He says, mark me and be astonished. He said, he said you're, 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 you're not talking to me, you're talking at me. But if you actually looked at me, if you actually processed my situation, if you actually understood what I've gone through, you'd lay your hand upon your mouth. You wouldn't be so quick to judge. You wouldn't be so quick to be harsh. You wouldn't be so quick to be mean. He says, even when I remember, I am afraid. And trembling taketh hold on my flesh. So we see in these first six verses that Job takes the time to kind of rebuke his friends a little bit on their failure to be good friends and to be good comforters. And if they need to confront him, even their failure in which they've done that. And then for the rest of the chapter, what Job does is he deals with this idea of wickedness and wicked people. And if you remember, this has been a theme through the book of Job, because uh, Bildad, the Shuhai, in chapter 18, devoted an entire discourse on the subject of wicked people. And then last week, Zophar, the Naamathite, uh, gave us an entire speech on the subject of wicked people. And if you remember, in both of those chapters, we saw that they were correct, they, but they were not completely correct, They were right, but they were wrong in their application of Job. In this chapter, what Job does is he brings that to light. And we spend the rest of the chapter from verses uh, uh, 7 through 34 dealing with the subject of wickedness. Now, the subject of wickedness is divided into two sections. And if you want to write this down for your notes, there's a place on the back of your course a week to do that. In verses 7 through 15, Job gives us the full picture of the wicked. Job does not argue with his friend Zophar or Eliphaz in regards to their analysis of wicked people, but he does argue the fact that they have not given the full or complete picture of the wicked. Because if you remember, they argued the fact that wicked people live terrible lives, have terrible lives, uh, uh, die terrible lives, and to an extent, that's true. You match that up with Scripture, and there's truth there. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. And, and, and if, you, if you need some evidence, you know, step out here on an on a evening, uh, any evening, <laughs> and look around at all these, you know, homeless people and drug addicts and, and, and people that have decided, look, kids, people that have decided that they're going to make their, you know, their, their lives fun and partying and drugs and look at where they're at and tell me that they're not having a, that they're having a good time. Tell me that the Bible's not true when it says the way of the transgressor is hard. Amen. So there's a truth to what his friends are saying. But Job says, wait a minute, wait a minute though. That's not the full truth. He says in verses 7 through 15, he says, Let me give you the full picture of the wicked. And then in verses 16 through 34, Job gives us his final analysis of the wicked. And again, we understand that this is the conclusion of round two. So let's kind of dig into this 
first section, verses 7 through 15, the full picture of the wicked. What is the full picture of the wicked? Because is it true that sin can ruin your life? Is it true that sin and living wickedly and living as though there is no God can make you miserable and make your life terrible? Absolutely, that is true. But that's not the full picture. See, they were wrong when they were applying that to Job. They were wrong about Job. But they were also wrong in applying that to all wicked people. Because here's what Job says. And let me just give you some statements and you can jot these down if you'd like. Job begins by saying this in verse 7. He says, wherefore. Now the word wherefore means for what reason. He says, he says, look, if it's true, if it's true, Job says, I agree, wicked people can live terrible lives, can live unhappy lives, can live miserable lives, can live in fear, can live in prison, can live in, you know, situations that they don't want to be. But he says, wherefore do the wicked live become, uh, become old? Do, do the wicked live become old? Yea, are mighty in power. And here's what Job is saying. Job is saying, that's true, Eliphaz. That's true, Zophar. But isn't it also true that oftentimes and sometimes wicked people to, uh, live to an old age? I mean, that's what he said in verse 7. He says, wherefore do the wicked live, become old? He says, some wicked people, he says, some wicked people, you know, you talked about the fact that some wicked people are cut off early. That's true. I mean, look at all the, the rock stars, and we've talked about it. The rock stars and the movie stars that die in their 30s, that die from suicides, that die uh, from, from, from um, overdoses. You know, it's true, Job would say to Eliphaz and to Zophar, that sometimes wicked people are cut off early. He says, but isn't it also true? He says, that if what you're saying is completely true, he says, then wherefore, for what reason do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power? He said, isn't it true that oftentimes wicked people live to old age? And the answer is, yeah. Then he says this, isn't it true that oftentimes wicked people live in comfort and power and wealth? I mean, look at verse 7 again. The last part, he says, yea, are mighty in power. He says, not only do they live long, but they live mighty in power. Skip down to verse 13. He says, they spend their days in wealth. And Job is just, he's saying, look, you gave a very good picture of wicked people. You did not give the full picture because, yes, it is true that sometimes they live miserable lives. But he says, sometimes, sometimes they live to become old. And they are mighty in power. And verse 13, they spend their days in wealth. Look at verse 8. He says, he says, you said that their children are cut off, their children die, their children are miserable. But he says, isn't it true that oftentimes wicked people set up their children for success on this earth? I mean, look, we don't have to even agree with Job. Can't we just look around and say, isn't that true? Isn't it true that there's some wicked people, some kids that have as a result of their parents' wickedness, have just been set up for success on this, in this world? Look at verse 8. He says, their seed is established, and their sight with them, and their offsprings before their eyes. I mean, he's saying, isn't it true that there are families out there like the Rockefellers, like the Rothschilds, like the Clintons, 
like the Trumps. I mean, isn't it true that sometimes wicked people live to old age and they live in power and wealth and they even set up their children for success? Look at verse 11. Job 21, verse 11. They send forth their little ones like a flock. He said, their little ones aren't scared and afraid. They've got lots of them and they're like a flock and their children dance. That's indicative of the fact that they're not living in fear and they're not sad. They're having fun and they're having a good time. Look at verse 12. They take the, trim, the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. Here, here's what all Job's saying. Job's saying, oftentimes, oftentimes, wicked people live to all age. He said, I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I agree that sin brings death and that sin brings a terrible life. But he says, isn't it true that oftentimes wicked people live to an old age? And isn't it true that oftentimes people live in comfort and power and wealth? And isn't it true that oftentimes wicked people set up their children? For success off of the backs of other people. And he says this in verse 9 their houses are safe from fear. Job says, Isn't it true that oftentimes wicked people live in security? I mean, isn't it true that oftentimes wicked people live in the nicest neighborhoods, the most secure neighborhoods, neighborhoods with gates and guards? Isn't it true? I mean, they're, they're not always, they're not always hanging out in the parking lot of Verity Baptist Church next to the methadone clinic. Sometimes they live in Granite Bay. I mean, oftentimes wicked people live in security. Their houses are safe from fear, Job says. He says, neither is the rod of God upon them. And Job would say, isn't it true, guys? Isn't it true? Oftentimes, wicked people are never punished by God on this earth. And look, please understand this. Wicked people, keep your place right here in Job 21, if you would. Go with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. We start at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, head backwards. You've got Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd and 1st Peter, James, and Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 12. He says, oftentimes, wicked people are never punished by God in this world. He says, look, neither is the rod of God upon them. The rod of God is a reference. The rod is a reference to a tool that would be used to discipline or chastise a child. It would be what you would use to administer a spanking. And he says, look, God's rod is not always upon them. God doesn't always punish them. And look, Job, look, we, sometimes when, we're, when Eliphaz and Zophar are talking, we kind of have to compare that with Scripture and figure out, is what they're saying is true? Is it not true? Is it a complete lie? Is it maybe true, but it's not true about Job? We have to do that. When Job is speaking, we don't have to do that. Everything Job says is true. God tells us at the end of the book, everything Job said was right. Job says, neither is the rod of God upon them. And that is true. Look, God does not punish all wicked people on this earth. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. But let me say this. This is not true of saved people. God does discipline all his children, period. See, you say, well, why does God not punish wicked people on this earth all the time? Here's why. Because wicked people are going to die and go to hell. 
And God's going to punish them. And we'll talk about that. Job talks about that in a second. But see, God has to punish his children on this earth because in heaven, your sins are blotted out. In heaven, your sins are forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, the Bible says, God will separate you from your sins. They'll never be brought up to you again. But on this earth, God does discipline and God does chastise, period, end of story. Look, this is why I often tell you, you're saved, you're a Christian, you do not get to play the game of life by the same rules that the world does. You say, well, why not? Well, you just forgot about something, uh, God. Because you say, well, my co-workers lie, my co-workers steal, my co-workers show up late, my co-workers do this, my co-workers do that, they get away with it, my neighbor does it, my unsafe family member does it, they get away with it, yeah, but they're not saved. And when you're wicked, sometimes God punishes you on this earth. Sometimes God doesn't. But when you're saved, God always punishes you on this earth. Because I prove that. Okay, Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation. Paul's talking, people, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. I believe it's Paul. Whoever wrote Hebrews is talking to people that have received discipline. And he says, see, let me, let me tell you. Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. He said, don't you remember that there's an exhortation? And he's about to quote the Old Testament. He says, there's an exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, where God speaks to you like you are his child. So, oh, well, that's nice. I'd love for God to speak to me as though I was his child. He says, okay, well, here we go. Here's what he said. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. See, we, we like to talk about the fact that God is our Heavenly Father, and praise the Lord for it, and we're eternally secure in Christ, uh, uh, and, and we can never lose it. And all that's great. But there's another side to that. You say, God's my Father, so I can do whatever I want, and I'm never going to lose my salvation. He's never going to throw me out of the family. Great. Praise the Lord. Here's the other side. God's your father, so he's going to spank you every time. He's going to chasten you every time. He's going to discipline you every time. See, sometimes we get the idea that God is a father like we are parents. And some of you parents have never spanked your kids or rarely spank your kids. The Bible says if you spare the rod, you hate your child. God is a good father. He's a consistent father. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Verse 7. If ye endure chastening. This, talk about, you know, flipping the encouragement switch. You say, Pastor, you know what I'm saying? I'm going through so many difficult things, and I'm going through so many hard things right now, and you know, you know what I'm saying? I feel like God's just chasing me right now. Hey, you ought to be encouraged. You say, why would I be encouraged? Because if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. Because if God takes the time to spank you, it must mean that you're his child. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. Notice, notice, for what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Then he says this in verse 8. But if you be without chastisement. If you can just live like the world, act like the world, do everything the world does, and nothing ever happens. You never get caught. You never get in trouble. God never chastises you. God never gets your attention. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, he says, then are ye bastards and not sons. 
He said, you want to know why the wicked can, get, can just live like the devil, live like hell, and God never punishes them? He says, because they are bastards. They don't have a heavenly father. And don't let that word offend you. That's a biblical word. We just saw it in the Bible. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not time. See, see, sometimes, look, the wicked, they kind of play this game and they take the chance and sometimes God punishes them and sometimes God doesn't. But when you got saved, the rules change to the game of life. You're on a different board. You're playing a different game. You have a heavenly father and whom the Lord loveth, he chaseth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Look, if you can just live like the world and you never get corrected, never get caught, never have anybody, uh, uh, never get any punishment, you know, you, maybe you should be wondering, do I even have a father? Am I even saved? Go back to Job, if you would. Job 21. Job is giving us this dialogue. He's giving us his thoughts on wicked people, and he's not disagreeing. He's not disagreeing with Elihu and Zophar. He's saying, look, I understand. I can look around, and I can see that you're right. Sometimes sin brings about, you know, terrible things in the lives of people, and they live terrible lives. But he says, that's not the full picture, though, because sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, wicked people do live to an old age. And wicked people do live in comfort and power and wealth. And wicked people do set up their children for success. And sometimes, and maybe even oftentimes, wicked people live in security. And sometimes, and maybe even oftentimes, wicked people are never punished in this world. See, God's people are always chastened by God in this world. And that doesn't mean that God brings down a ton of bricks on you every time you do something wrong. But you better believe that God is always mindful of what his children are doing. And trying to bring them back in the way they should go. Then Job says this, look verse 10. Their bull gendereth, means that they give birth, they conceive and reproduce, and faileth not. He says when their bulls conceive and give birth, they never have a miscarriage. Their cow calveth and casteth not her calf. Now, in our society, you know, these things are, are pets, right? You, we think animals are pets and they're our best friends. But in this society, they were money. This was an investment. Here's what he's saying. Oftentimes, wicked people never have financial difficulties. We struggle financially. We go through hard times and we go through heartaches and, and we have issues. But oftentimes, it seems like wicked people, they just, you know, invest and everything's always good. And they never lose money. They're bull gendereth and faileth not. They're cow calveth and, and casteth not her cow. It seems like they're okay financially. Notice verse 11. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. We read that. They take the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. We read that. Look at verse 13. They spend their days in wealth, and in a moment, go down to the grave. Here's what he says. Guys, isn't it true that oftentimes wicked people die painless and comfortable deaths? I mean, sometimes wicked people, they don't die these terrible, agonizing deaths. In a moment, go down to the grave. This is after he already told us in verse 7 that they live long upon the earth in wealth and comfort. He says, isn't it true that sometimes and maybe even oftentimes wicked people die painless, comfortable deaths? Look at verse 14. Therefore, he says, because of all of this, because of all of this wicked people 
they say unto God. Therefore they say unto God, depart from us. For we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? See, Job, Job says this. He says, oftentimes wicked people reject God. Therefore they say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. They say, what is the Almighty that we should serve him? You know what the problem with rich people is and, 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 and wealthy people? Is that they don't think they need anything. They don't think they need anyone. They don't think they even need God. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? Why should I serve God? I'm doing fine. Why should I give my life to serve God? Look how well I'm doing. Look at my big house and my big yard and my big fence and the guard out front. I'm doing fine. And what profit should we have if we pray unto Him? I don't have need of anything. Why do I need to pray to God? Go to Matthew 19 if you would. Matthew 19, Jesus kind of said this in a very similar way, Matthew 19. First book in the New Testament, and let me just say this. There's nothing wrong with money, but the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And I will say this, that money will always put itself at odds with God. That's why Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and stuff. You cannot serve God and things. And look, Jesus says here, Matthew 19, verse 23, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly, that doesn't mean never, but it means scarcely or rarely, enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus, of course, is using hyperbole here. He's saying, look, it would be easier for you to get a camel through the eye of a needle, big animal, eye of a needle, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You say, why why is it hard for wicked people, rich people, to get saved? Because they don't think they need the Almighty. They don't think they need to pray to God. They don't think they need God. By the way, saved people oftentimes get money, and the Bible says the cares of this world and the riches of this world, they distract them and get them away from God. Nothing wrong with money, just don't let money get a hold of you. That's why in Proverbs 30 we read, neither give me poverty nor riches. Lord, just let me be comfortable enough to serve you. Don't give me so much, I start getting so distracted, I start missing church because you know, I just make so much and I'm in so much debt and I got this big house and I got these cars and I got this and that. Don't ever let me get distracted. Job, Job says, isn't it true that oftentimes wicked people reject God? Rich people, they say unto God, depart from us. Go back to Job 21. So we see that Job in verses 7 through 15, he gives us the full or complete picture of the wicked. Because he says, look, guys, so far, life, life has, I'm not arguing with you. 
yes, it's true. Yes, we can see the derelicts and we can see the people that kill themselves and are depressed and suicide and all that stuff and they ruin their life as a result of sin. That's true, but that's not the full picture because there's also the wicked people who live long, healthy, wealthy lives. Their children are set up for success. They, they die painless deaths. They're comfortable. They have no financial difficulties. So then Job says, let me give you my, my final analysis. Because they've given him his analysis. Their analysis was this. Job, look at all these wicked people. When people do wickedly, bad things happen to them. You've done, you, bad things are happening to you, therefore you must be wicked. And Job says, but that's not always true. Because sometimes, sometimes bad things happen to good people. And then Job takes it a step further and says, let me really blow your mind and realize this, that sometimes good things happen to bad people. So then he would say, here's my final analysis. Verses 16 through 34. For the rest of this chapter, I'm not going to give you an outline. We're just going to walk through the verses and I'll give you commentary as we go through. Look at verse 16. He says, lo, their good is not in their hand. He says, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. He said, guys, lest you think I'm trying to promote wickedness, he says, just realize this. I've never thought or given into the mindset of wicked people. I'm just telling you the reality of what I see, that you're not giving the full picture. He says in verse 17, he says, how oft? That means how often? He says, come on, guys, really? How often is the candle of the wicked put out? Every once in a while, we hear of some singer or movie star or whatever that commits suicide or dies of uh, an overdose or dies on some, in some plane crash or helicopter crash. But he says, really, how often do you, we really hear that? How often is the candle of the wicked put out or snuffed out or taken before their time? He says, and how often cometh their destruction upon them? He says, yes, it happens sometimes that wicked people are just decisively and quickly destroyed. But really, how often does that happen? And he's making the point that it doesn't happen every time. He says in verse 18, they are stubble. The word stubble means stalks of grain left sticking out of the ground. He says they are stubble before the wind. And as the chaff, as the husk separated by threshing. He says, and as the chaff, the storm carrieth away. Then he says this in verse 19. He says, God layeth up his iniquity for his children. He rewardeth him, and he shall know it. His eyes, whose eyes? God's eyes shall see his wicked destruction, and he shall drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Here's what Job says. Job says, though it is true that sometimes, sometimes they die quick, they die terrible, tragic deaths, he said, it's also true that sometimes they live happy, long, peaceful, and prosperous lives. But he says, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, his eyes, God's eyes, shall see his destruction. And he shall, he, the wicked person, shall drink of the wrath of the Almighty. He says, look, at the end of the day, God will destroy the wicked in hell. So then he says this in verse 21. He says, for what pleasure hath he in the, his house after him when the number of his months is cut off in the midst? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, 
I don't care how nice his house is, and I don't care how many months he lived in that house. He says, how much pleasure was that house really when you die and go to hell? He says, for what pleasure hath he in his house after him when the number of his months is cut off in the midst? Here's what Job's saying. If you die and go to hell, what was so great about your life? If you die and go to hell, what was so amazing about your life? And then people will say, here's what people say. People say, well, is it really fair, though? We who are never fair, we who only see things from our perspective, we who judge people with a beam in our eye while they have, you know, uh, small issues in their lives, you know, dare to look at God and say, God, you're not fair. And this is a question that's asked to God. Is it really fair that some wicked people live nice and pleasurable lives and others, you know, don't live nice lives? Is that really fair? And here's what we would think in our very fair minds. Well, if I'm going to die and go to hell anyway, I might as well live a nice life. Might as well live a good life. Might as well, you know, be the Rockefellers. And this is what Job says. Job says in verse 22, shall any teach God knowledge? Like, okay, yeah, you, you're smarter than God is. God needs a lesson from you. God missed something, and you need to teach God knowledge, seeing he judges those that are high. He, here's what he's saying. You cannot give God advice on how to judge. God is the righteous judge. He says, one dieth in his full strength. Look, don't miss this. Here's, here's his final analysis. Job's talking about the wicked. One dieth in his full strength, being wholly at ease and quiet. His breasts are full of milk, and his bones are moistened with marrow. And another dieth in the bitterness of his soul, and never eateth with pleasure. They shall lie down alike in the dust, and the worms shall cover them. And you and I say, that's not fair. In the final analysis, here's what Job says, one is not better than the other. If they both die and go to hell. You say, well, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair. Let me give you an example. What if someone was going to torture you? What if someone was going to torture you and a friend? They took two individuals, and they said, we're going to take your hands, we're going to put your hands on and, and make you hold on to a burning iron for 10 minutes. But one of you, one of you is going to be given seven seconds of holding a cool rag right before we burn your hand. So 10 minutes of just burning iron, and then someone else gets the, full, the same 10 minutes, just 7 seconds less. 9 minutes, 53 seconds. Let me ask you this. How long would you have to be holding on to that iron before those 7 seconds didn't really make a difference? I mean, 10 seconds, 1 minute, 2 minutes, 5 minutes. I mean, once you're into like 5 minutes of holding, it's not like, oh, well, it's a lot easier for you. I mean, you know, you had those 7 seconds. See, when the wicked, when the wicked live peaceful, prosperous lives on this earth for 70 and 80 years, it really doesn't make much of a difference once, they, once they've been in hell for 1,000 years. 
It, see, the, the wicked live on this earth to be 70 and 80 and 90 and 100 years old, and they live in prosperity and wealth, and they live in peace, and they die peaceful deaths, and they set up their children. But you know what? Once you've been in hell, because the thing about hell is that it lasts forever. Once you've been there for a million years, it doesn't really much make much difference. So Job says, they shall lie down alike in the dust, and the worms shall cover them. Verse 27. He says, behold, I know your thoughts. He says, I know what you're thinking. And the devices which you wrongfully imagine against me. He said, see, this whole time you've been telling me, you've been telling me that I'm wicked because all these bad things have happened to me. He says, but you have not seen the full picture because sometimes, sometimes, good things happen to bad people. And if that's true, then isn't it possible that sometimes bad things happen to quote unquote good people? For ye say, verse 28, where is the house of the prince? And where are the dwelling places of the wicked? See, he says, you judge based off of where somebody lives, how they live, their status. Have you not asked them that go by the way? Going by the way is a reference to death. He says, why don't you ask them after they've died what they think about those houses and those princes? And do ye not know their tokens that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction? that they shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. Who shall declare his way to his face? And who shall repay him that he hath done? Yet shall he be brought to the grave and shall remain in the tomb. The clods of the valley shall be sweet unto him. And every man shall draw after him as there are innumerable before him. How then comfort ye me in vain? And we make a full circle and get back to where Job started. You really stink at this comforting thing, guys. Because you don't have the full picture. He said, how then comfort ye me in vain? Seeing in your answer, there remaineth falsehood. He says, you're not right about everything you've said. You're partly right. Some things are right. Some things are right, you're just applying them to the wrong guy. Some things are right, but not right about everybody. He says, you think you know better than God. And look, just look, please understand this. From time to time, you and I will be in positions to judge. Let's always remember that we're not God. I can teach God a thing or two. No, you can't. You don't know. God is the judge. Go to Isaiah chapter 30. We'll finish right here. Isaiah chapter 30. Job says, you are wrong. Some wicked people live happy, healthy, wealthy lives. Job says... You guys are wrong. Some rich people live long, prosperous, peaceful, happy, successful, wealthy lives. They die painless deaths in their sleep. But that doesn't make God unjust. Job says sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. But at the end of the day, God will judge and God is just. And the idea is this. This is what Job, I believe, is trying to tell his friends and what he's trying to tell you and I. That regarding God's judgment, sometimes we just need to wait and put it in God's hands. Because at the end of the day, God knows best. 
Isaiah 30, verse 18. Notice what the Bible says. And therefore, will the Lord wait? And therefore, will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you? And therefore, will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you? Now, we like that, don't we? That's a nice. That's nice. But notice the context, though. For the Lord is a God of judgment. The context of, and therefore will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. The context of that is that the Lord is a God of judgment. So see, that's a good verse. Or that's a bad verse, depending on what side of the judgment you're on. Because when you're the one who's sinned, you're the one that's done wrong, you're the one that's going to get punished, that God is chastening and scourging every son whom we receive it. When you're the one getting the punishment, this is a really good verse. And therefore will the Lord wait. Praise the Lord. And he may be gracious unto you. Praise God. And therefore will he be exalted. Yeah, I'll exalt him if he's gracious and he waits and that they may have mercy upon you. That's all good. When I'm on this side of the judgment. But when I'm on the other side, and I'm saying, Lord, get him. Lord, get her. Don't let him get away with that. Don't let her get away with that. This is not a good verse. And therefore, will the Lord wait? What? Why? Just get him. That he may be gracious unto you. No, don't be gracious. He doesn't need graciousness. And therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy. He doesn't need mercy. This is why the Bible says, with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Don't miss it. Here's what Job's been trying to teach us. Blessed are all they that wait for him. The Bible says that vengeance belongeth to God. The Lord will repay. You know, sometimes the best thing to do is just to wait. You say, but the wicked people, they look like they live long lives and live prosperous lives and live peaceful lives and they set their children up and they're never in pain and their investments are always good and everything's fine. Doesn't that kind of make you upset? Just wait. God's a righteous judge. God will have his way. At the end, it'll be fine. Let God judge. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this chapter where Job kind of shifts and switches the script a little bit. And he helps us to remember that it's not always cut and dry. It's not always that black and white. We think you did something bad, you should have something bad happen to you. It doesn't always work that way. But God is just. Help us to just wait on the Lord. Help us to just trust in the Lord. Sometimes wicked people die horrible and terrible deaths. And sometimes they live painless and pleasurable lives. But at the end of the day, you're just. 
you will recompense it upon their heads. Lord, help us when we find ourselves on the other side of judgment to pray for your grace. And when we find ourselves wanting you to judge others, to remember that we should judge the way we'd like to be judged. Help us to learn from Job as he finishes up, concludes this round, and tries to teach us that sometimes we just need to wait on God. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.